Hi everyone, this is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. This is another commenting episode in support of a virtual conference being hosted by the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC. This conference is focusing on the urban commons and is occurring between May 6th and May 8th, so starting in about a week. You can still register for this conference on the IASC's website to participate in events and listen to the speakers. In this episode, I spoke with several people who helped to organize this virtual conference, including Hito Nikrishnan from the University of Sheffield, Rimjim Agarwal from Arizona State University, and Hari Nagendra from Azim Premji University. This is the In Common Podcast. So uh, just to start things off, I'd love to just ask each of you to briefly introduce yourselves. And then we'll we'll kind of get into your thoughts about the urban commons and what makes it so interesting and distinct. So Hita, can I start with you? Um, sure. Uh, hi everyone. I'm Hita. I am a postdoc at the University of Sheffield. I am also a visiting faculty at Azim Premji University uh, in Bangalore, and um, I've worked largely on the urban commons of Bangalore, uh, the water commons of Bangalore. Um, I kind of looked at how urban commons have changed over time, uh, really both in terms of distribution as well as in terms of how uh, the social ecological relationships have been built uh, with these water commons over time. Um, and then I also look at really how those changes are brought about by visions of what uh, the urban really means at each given point of time and how various governance regimes sort of um, try to enable that dominant vision of what the urban looks like. Um, and therefore, in the process of realizing that those dominant visions, I try to look at who wins, who loses, what forms of uses are kept invisible, what forms um, become more visible, so to speak. Um, but also, uh, you know, what kinds of marginalities are created over time um, and really newer forms of marginalities that emerge in the contemporary period. So yeah, that's basically what I do with Urban Commons. Great. Thanks, Sita. Harini, do you want to take the next uh, step? Sure. And thanks, Michael, for getting this together. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've been working on the urban commons since 2006 or thereabouts, and it started with a very personal journey for me because Bangalore was my city and I started working on two types of commons, which were actually, one was disappearing, so the urban street trees across Bangalore were being felled. And so it became part of how can research contribute to um, an activist movement. Uh, students of mine were very keen on trying to see how we could really contribute data that the activist groups could use to put pressure on the government to stop cutting the trees. The second was an engagement with a lake near my house, another urban commons, which was being restored by a local community. And there I was just a member of the community trying to restore lakes. And both of these times, you know, around 2006, I was not working on the urban commons for my research. But I guess that was the start of a journey that slowly took... Uh, took over to the point that urban commons is now the, I'd say, the primary focus of my research. Uh, we do a lot of work with urban commons primarily in Bangalore, but we've looked at a number of Indian cities and from street trees to wooded groves to urban forests, grazing lands, wetlands, lakes, the whole gamut of places. From multiple perspectives, I think one is how are urban commons important for the sustainability of the city itself? You know, preventing it from, for instance, uh, making it more resilient to sea level rise or uh, other kinds of uh, heat waves and other kinds of uh, issues. The second is how is the urban commons important for the resilience of the people who live in the city? And often that's the most disadvantaged. 
and often it's people with nature dependent livelihoods in indian cities grazers fishers etc whom you find in the heart of the city and the third is how can we actually communicate to people that these are urban commons and not just recreational spaces so we've been experimenting with a variety of approaches including bilingual books for children all the way to writing you know newspaper columns to doing photo exhibitions and a variety of other things to see how that message can get out that these are really commons and need they're not public spaces they're not private spaces but they're commons and need to be managed as such great thanks arini Uh, Rimjim. Yeah, thanks, um, Michael, for organizing this. And hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Rimjim Agarwal, and I am an associate professor at Arizona State University. I was trained as an economist with interest in international development and resource economics, and so my take on the commons has been from an international development perspective. now what do i mean by that i'm originally from india and one of the things that has always fascinated me is about this transition in what we call the process of development in courts which is a transition from traditional societies to what we call modern forms of society and economy and this is accompanied by various kinds of changes such as changes in population growth um changes in technology the move towards globalization onset of market forces changes in values and traditions and looking at what impact all these factors have on diverse ways in which resources were managed in traditional societies which is largely in the form of commons so in my research i have looked at this historical process uh back when i did my dissertation i was very fascinated by the process of um, green revolution um which i i talk of my generation as being the generation the green revolution generation and with the green revolution came this very strong incentive to control water in order to reap benefits from the hybrid varieties and i became very interested in how groundwater emerged as a very valued resource in um in rural areas and in india as well as in most other parts of the world we don't have well defined property rights on groundwater and i became interested in how governance emerges when you do not have well defined property rights and what kinds of institutions emerge how do people adapt to it and so that is been started with rural commons so to say and then i became fascinated with the issue of urban commons because it's a most of the work that was done on commons were in traditional societies but urbanization i think is fascinating because it just throws you off in a totally different direction the scale at which we are talking about groups that manage commons is completely different when you're talking about urban commons so more recently i've been working uh, looking at delhi and uh, looking at water management in the metropolitan area of delhi which has a population of close to 20 million so you're talking about you know much of commons research which was developed in the context of traditional societies to talking about these rapidly growing urban areas where people are mostly migrants they don't need know each other they haven't had this history of being together of having common shared values and knowledge 
and now you're throwing them together. How do forms of cooperation and governance emerge in very dynamic urban settings? How do we conceptualize of commons in uh, these kind of very dynamic settings? This is uh, my research agenda. Okay, great. Um, thank you all. So I'm hearing some common threads. There's, there's a focus on water in each of your research programs. I also feel like I heard from at least a few of you an interest in um, processes that affect social equity, um, an interest in, in activism, which um, some people have argued need to be a stronger part of the research program on the commons. Um, what would you say, do you perceive uh, any of the three of you, um, this persistence in the domination of the rural commons in the literature? And why do you think that is? Given that, right, we've seen urbanization, as Rimji was just saying, there's so many people in these spaces. And maybe Harini, you, I'm, I'm kind of maybe heard a partial answer to this is that we, we underappreciate potentially urban commons because we don't see them. They kind of don't fit our frame for what the commons is. So maybe we're ignoring them. So Harini, do you want to take the first stab at that? Do you perceive there's still to be a domination of like the rural commons in the community? And if you do, why do you think that is? In the community studying Indian commons, absolutely. There's a complete domination of the rural commons. I think it's partly the fact that, A, we don't even know enough about the rural commons. And so there's so much to be done there. And there is a clear importance in rural spaces of commons for uh, livelihood support and uh, just basic subsistence support of so many people, right? Whereas in the cities, it's, it's a relatively smaller fraction that depend on the commons directly for livelihoods. So that's one part of it. But, and I have to say another part of it is that when we organize urban commons events in Indian conferences, which we do fairly routinely, the same five, six people that we have to call on, and really that's that handful, there's probably six people working on urban commons issues in India, on India, right? And when you talk to others, they tend to think that urban commons are not, they don't exist. And I, I think there's two issues there. One is the fact that they're not thinking of commons as in commoning. They think of commons as in uh, common property regimes. And of course, you don't have really common property regimes in the, in the de jure sense in cities, because everything, in, in, at least in India, belongs to the state in that sense. So we are, but we are more interested in de facto and what really goes on in terms of how people use this place and how they're common pool resources. And that distinction is, is, is a hard distinction to make. You have to keep, I mean, that we've had many arguments about this. Uh, so that's one part of it. And the second part is really in the popular imagination, these are public spaces. And when they become mm -hmm. public spaces, our own research has shown that the problem there is then it's a public good and the state decides what is a public good. So across, let's take wooded growth, for instance, across cities in India and definitely in Bangalore, you might have maybe 5% of these wooded droves that used to be there when they were rural spaces. As the city took over, only 5% of these spaces remain because not that they're not public anymore, but they've become bus stops, they've become public toilets, they've become schools, they've become all kinds of other public spaces, which, which definitely you need, you know. Um, but did you have to make them in places that were uh, natural resource commons? No, you could have found other spaces. But this idea that it's a public good leads to that erasure because it's why do you need a set of trees when you, of course, need a school, when you, of course, need a... You know, a a place for children, a library for children, and, and other kinds of uses. Right? So, so those will always take prominence. 
Okay. Harini, can I ask you a follow-up question based on a distinction you relied on there, um, specifically between commoning as a process or a movement and this idea of common property or common pool resources, which is, I think, what's dominated the imagination, as you said, of common scholars for a long time. I mean, I really, just in the last year or two, have started to engage with the idea of commoning. And honestly, for the first couple of months, I kind of dismissed it. And then I kind of kept hearing about it. And, and, and now I'm a fan but it, I had to go through a process. And so how do you see that distinction being and what is the importance of the process of commenting for you? I'm glad you asked. I went through some of, I'd say a very similar process and uh, maybe uh, it's part of, at least for me, it was being introduced to a very Ostrom workshop way of thinking about the commons, which was to begin with the hard distinction between common uh, pool regimes and common property, uh, sorry, common uh, pool resources and common property regimes, right? And then when you actually see people making use, because cities are such dynamic commons, you have the fishers and the grazers that used to use these places and they're still there. You have the erstwhile village communities that come into these places. And then you have people that come in and live in apartments around the city and have no idea of the social ecological history, maybe no interest in it even. And are thinking of these as places that you go for recreation or a jog or a walk or you take your kids with you. There are bird watchers who come in who are interested only in the birds and nothing else. And you can actually see commoning going on because each of them are doing their own commoning. It's just that they're doing it with their people in their way. And then slowly sometimes, so we've been looking at how a, a restored lake, for instance, becomes a node of new commoning in the city. Uh, it actually came about in response to a question. So I have to say that our interest in commoning started with that question because someone asked us a long time, asked me a long time ago in a talk that you're just giving us a story of lament. It's, you know, the, like love's labor lost. It's commons labor lost in cities. And is that an inevitable story? And uh, no, you see that new commons are being generated all the time. Are they as equitable as before? Well, yes and no, because there's different forms of equity that are being created, different other kinds of structures. For instance, caste structures and caste inequities have broken down, but uh, class inequities are really building up in the Indian city of today. And so we got very interested in that, but we also got interested in the fact that these places generate, you can think of them as environment being a node for placemaking. So when you have a commons, you, you create the commons as your place. And if you're a migrant worker, a, a migrant, for instance, construction labor, or you could be transgender community, or you could be uh, an information technology worker in you know, a much wealthier, but still a migrant, uh, all different kinds of people who make this commons their home and then start seeing the city as theirs and then want to do something about this commons, about protecting it, because it's engendered that kind of sense of place making. And so that's our journey into how I at least started getting into the idea of commoning as mm. you know, starting with that question alone. As this alternative perspective, yeah. yeah. Um, Rimjin and Ita, do you have thoughts about the original question I asked about the dominance of the rural commons or thoughts based on Harini's answer and this idea of the commoning process as being a way of recognizing um, how the commons plays out in urban spaces? So I, I think... Um, we have to consider how the scholarship in commons evolved. Um, I think that is the starting place. And academia is known both for sticking to traditions and at times being very dynamic and changing. It does this simultaneously. So in academia, um, there is the way the scholarship on commons 
evolved was through these rural settings. And many of these concepts like that of common property, a group, a defined group using a defined resource emerged in that, um, in that kind of setting. But as Harini was saying, urbans are, are, urban spaces are very dynamic and they are always changing. And so I think, and this is what this conference is going to be about, I hope about thinking about new ways of thinking about these commons, of conceptualizing these commons, because I think we are faced with, a, with this very new kind of challenge in Anthropocene, which challenges us to conceptualize this in new ways and get away. This is the second point I want to make. We tend to think in terms of dichotomies, so binaries. So there is the public, private, rural, urban, we have to bring in, I think, this um, emerging concept of legal plurality. So there are spaces that Harini was pointing out, like these streets, uh, common streets in urban areas, or these lakes, um, which are neither completely public, they are not controlled by the government, particularly this is true in the global south, there is this vacuum. Um, we don't it's not quite clear, is it public, is it private, is it, um, and I think we new, need new categories, borrowing I think from this literature on legal plurality. We need to move beyond binaries, I think, to, uh, to give space to this new emergent forms of, um, like Harini was saying, that incorporate placemaking and how people are making are using and adapting to these uh, spaces to as they struggle for their livelihoods and other needs. Mm. Rimjan, I'd love to ask you a follow-up to that as well. So, I mean, we just talked about this process of commoning and I view it very much as a process. And you mentioned your interest in development, which is also a process. And you, I feel like I heard from you this the critique of a kind of orthodox way of viewing development based on this idea we're going from here and we're going to this other place that we think is better along this like very traditionally viewed way. Do you also think about um, the process of commoning and does it relate at all to how you view the process of development? Yeah, I think uh, there is uh, the orthodox way of looking at development was very much as a top down process and a universalizing process. So everyone had to follow a blueprint which was established by the formerly, you know, the Western industrialized world and we have to follow the same path. So this is a universalizing process. But I think this is what commoning is doing is basically challenging that there is one path, that there is a universal process um, and, and allowing for emergence. So most of my research now is on this idea of emergence, this idea of bottom-up uh, processes that come up out of the everyday interactions of people with each other and with their uh, socio and economic and ecological environments. And how those feedback processes lead to new forms of institutions, new ways that people come up with ways to regulate their relationships and govern. So I think that is, I would say, the commonality um, that you asked about. Same thing is happening with development as was happening with common people's everyday struggles to uh, make a living and um, to meet their basic needs. And uh, space placemaking is part of that as well. 
Okay. I mean, it sounds like you're reminding me of a term that I've heard about in the last couple of years, community-driven development. Is that an important term for you or for you, Harini? So I think there was, as a reaction to the top-down, there was this idea of community development, but the way we think about it now is that it's it's again, not that binary. It's not top-down and it's not community development. It is, I think, we recognize that there are a diverse set of actors, diverse set of processes. So community driven doesn't mean that the state doesn't have a role. Even the person on the street, uh, the homeless is also interacting on a daily basis with state processes and state policies. And it's, it's that uh, interaction, I think, um, that's the way I think about it now. So that would be the difference with community driven. Harini. Yeah, absolutely, Rimjin. I think, uh, and I'd say, I'd add, it's, it's also, it, therefore, by its nature, it's very polycentric. Uh, the closest I can think of in Indian cities is there's been a push in many cities, certainly in Bangalore, for what you call ward-level communities. Ward is the, the smallest administrative unit of a city. And so if you had ward-level communities where the elected representative regularly meets with and interacts with a small committee that is set up to be a representative of, for instance, informal settlements, all the way to women's issues and you know just diverse issues of different kinds. But that idea has never taken off. Uh, it was it's been pushed by activist groups who appeal to courts, and so there were ward committees have been set up in Bangalore, but they've never been really functional and in the sense that they should have been. But I think those are the kinds of initiatives we would want for that kind of community-led development. You have to have the city involved because I think city functions look at things, for instance, like um, water networks and topography and biophysical connections and police connections and all of these other things that you need in a city that you need the government to come in and do. But then you need local communities to set their own priorities and see how to fit those priorities into that. And that's why I'd say it's polycentric and it needs to be this kind. You need a you need a, a, a way to work in the voice of the community, not on an ad hoc basis, but on a sort of systematic basis. And that's something we lack. So Harini, to follow up on that, because I can't resist, I mean, why do you think these this ward-based policy didn't work? I mean, my brain wants to think, well, this sounds like you're privileging these formal administrative units, but then informally things were not working out so well. Um, is there a story there? It's the political economy, because if you have the elected representative in charge of vetoing or accepting that list, then that elected representative is likely to get their friends and buddies on that group, right? And in some cases, there has been enough pressure that you get outside people on that list, so people who are not necessarily the, you know, the friends and buddies. And then in those cases, the, the, the ward committees have simply stopped working because it was too dysfunctional and, uh, yeah. There were, the the problem I think comes with the the old idea that we know in the common sense when you have veto power when one group has veto power it becomes a problem and here the elected representative has veto power mm. and I think it was set up that way for good reasons because they do need that power to run it but when you use it unfairly then nothing there's no point of having a ward committee. Okay. Yeah, I just add one quick point. I know we haven't given a chance to Hita to talk. Um, we are talking about social ecological systems, so when you are thinking about the ecology at the same time and about the resource, like for example, you're thinking about water, you give each ward the control over its own water resources, let's say groundwater. But if the aquifer is 
boundaries are very different, then you can't have a system that works only by giving autonomy to the ward because the res you have to look at resource interdependencies also. And so there, this is the old question of, you know, matching boundaries between um, social units and resource units. And I think this is why it goes back to this whole big literature on polycentricity and how you have, you need to take into account these overlapping boundaries, overlapping jurisdictions and scale issues as you think about social ecological systems. It, it sounds like there's going to be some overlap between the conferences on the urban commons and the polycentric conference. Um, so Ita, yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts, you know, getting back to the initial question about the relationship between the urban commons literature and the rural, how that's played out in your perspective, but building um, as you'd like on the discussion that we've had so far. Yeah, so I, I, something that we've seen, for example, in Bangalore is that, you know, we might think of Bangalore as this mega city with, you know, predominantly urban spaces and so on. But even within that, right in the heart of the city, we've actually seen what would be called rural livelihoods, what would be called rural, um, you know, um, sort of uh, households, um, livestock rearing, farming, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, which kind of just, and, and, and part of it is also because of the way the city has grown by sort of engulfing its peri-urban villages around it, so to speak, and then expanding to form what is what greater Bangalore now. Um, but uh, I mean, so I think something that I, I was really uh, sort of thinking when, when Renji mentioned that is when we think of urban commons, we can't really think of it in terms of, you know, there is a separate distinct rural common, commons and there's a separate distinct urban commons, so to speak. Um, and that was something that I just wanted to highlight as well that it's more a continuum of sorts. So we've talked about um, a bit about each of your research projects so far. So for folks who, let's say we're talking to someone who's, you know, they have focused on the rural, rural commons as opposed to now we're, we can talk about the rural urban commons and kind of mixture there. And they're, asked, they're, they're interested in learning more about this as a research program. What would you say are, um, some challenges that are specific to conducting research on the urban commons? And what are some aspects of the work that really excite you that kind of keep you coming back for more? Ita, do we, we can start with you since you went last last time. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, some of the challenges of studying urban commons is pretty much this thing that the places are so dynamic. So for someone like me who's studying things over time, um, there is a lot of uh, I mean, it, it's a lot of real effort to find out who were the original or descendants of original inhabitants or the villagers who lived there in the place and so on. Um, there is also what someone very recently pointed out to us about survivorship, survivor bias, right? You only find those people who have continued to stay on in the landscape. Um, so we do not really know what the perspectives of those who have migrated out of the city, so to speak. Why did these people migrate? Uh, what are the challenges they were facing and so on um, is, is an entire missing aspect of it. Um, in terms of smaller cities, the data itself, historical data itself might not be as uh, widely available as, say, for example, bigger cities like Bangalore or Mumbai or Kolkata or whatever in India, at least. Uh, Rimjin, did you have any thoughts to build on that? Yeah, so... Um... Some of my recent work has, um, in our uh, research group at Arizona State University, we have been um, looking at the design principles that Ostrom came up with. 
many people would regard her design principles to be one of her central contributions uh, to resource governance, right? Uh, and it has both theoretical and very practical implications on how you design a resource governance regime. Now, in thinking, and so we have looked at case studies across largely traditional commons, rural commons, to see whether the governance principles hold or not. And by and large, we have found that they hold, although there is a lot of diversity. But now start thinking about the urban commons. So let's start with the design principle of resource boundaries and a defined resource user group. Now in the urban commons, one is just challenged to think about what is the boundary here that one is talking about. Because there are simultaneously, as I said before, these overlapping uh, resource regimes and overlapping boundaries. So you can think about the city of Delhi of 20 million, you have the metropolitan boundary, then you have the administrative boundaries of how the city is actually managed with, between the different municipalities. And then you have wards that um, Harini was talking about, you have neighborhood associations and it is, it is nested in a way, but in a very different way than we have been used to thinking about. So that is what I would talk, you know, when I talk to my counterparts studying rural commons, I think some of the analytical categories that we are so um, familiar with uh, need some rethinking and reconceptualization. You know, like what 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 is the property that we are talking about? As we discussed before, there is no well-defined property here, it's a very legally pluralistic notion here. Who are the users of that resource? So you're thinking about streets or urban lakes. Historically, who has the rights? It's a very dynamic place. You cannot establish that very well. Um, so, and then there is like, we are, I'm looking at water management in cities and the water is coming from diverse sources and there is this whole infrastructure. So infrastructure is again, something we are focusing a lot in our research group now, because there is the ecological part, there is the social part, and then there is this technological part and how technology interfaces between the social and ecological in the sense that it mixes. So the water system in the city mixes the groundwater with the surface water with reuse, reclaimed water. And when you mix all of this, how do you define who has rights on it? And in what ways? This becomes a very uh, important challenge. And I'll return back to it, but I'll pass the baton on to Harini. Thanks. I think this is fascinating. I build on both uh, what Rimjim said and Hita said that I think the challenges for me of studying the city as opposed to forest commons is boundaries don't exist. Right? I mean, they're much harder to define. Yeah, the boundary of where does uh, both the resource start and end and the users, I mean, users have really no boundaries. It's, it's it, it could be visitors from anywhere, international visitors coming in or all kinds of things from to the very local. Uh, the other thing uh, is the, the other challenge is data, which Hita pointed to. You would think it is it should be easier to get data on cities than in uh, rural areas, but ironically, it could even be harder because you don't have survey maps and very basic kinds of data that you often do have in many villages. Uh, the third is, Rimjim adds a very important point of infrastructure and add, I'll add economics to this. And I'm realizing more and more now that 
we can't understand why the commons go the way they do unless you understand the whole not just this hegemonic idea of development perceived in a certain way that for a city to develop you need roads and you need infrastructure and you don't need public transport you don't need you know, wetlands and you don't need lakes but you know so, so there's that idea of development but there's also the the economic forces frankly that are it's it's a juggernaut it's pushing it the city in one direction and then to understand how that economic system interacts with the commons and any argument you can make for let's say resilience or health or well-being is completely outweighed by that whole economic argument not just outweighed i'd say it's not even on the table to be discussed then it becomes really challenging because uh, i think as this if if as a commons researcher you need to understand the infrastructure you need to understand economics you need to understand ecology you need to understand how societies work there's only so much that that one is equipped to do and so i find the more we work the more inadequate i find um, it to actually think you know you sort of you realize what you're doing is really inadequate and compared to the scope of what's going on there okay this is all really great i'm i now have to try to not to have this interview turn into like a 5 hour escapade I mean, <laughs> um yeah i will say this is humbling as as a researcher who focuses mostly on the rural commons I mean I'm aware kind of vaguely of how much more complicated things must be socially in in big cities but it's it's different to have it spelled out. Um I mean one impression I'm really getting I feel like from all three of you is that in urban spaces the commons concept is really an entry point into a system and to understand that system you're really having to engage with a lot of concepts that are equally important about migration about economic you know hegemony and power um other perspectives that are not always closely tied to the like initial concept of the commons and so it ends up being it it does feel like it's more towards the kind of either social ecological or social technical framework spaces that the field has been moving to um has have those frameworks and concepts been helpful to you all in unpacking this complexity and related to that and i you know one of my worst habits as an interviewer is asking more than one question at once and, and i'm always aware of it now when i do it how do we unpack this complexity right is is the answer more data or is that kind of falling into a trap where we need to be thinking more qualitatively i've heard arguments by some folks that to really unpack complexity some of some traditional qualitative methods are actually the best to kind of describe with these thick descriptions of what's happening because the numbers aren't going to do it this is going to be one of the last like kind of real heavier analytical questions i'd like to ask you all is how do we deal with trying to sort all that complexity out that we have to take on board once we've entered one of these systems through this initial concept of the commons so on your the first part of your question about um you know this goes back to this issue of commoning i think is also a form of resistance i see the whole movement of commoning as a form of resistance or what we are calling in the conference you know social movements and urban commoning which is emerging as a way to um uh, as a way of struggling against this hegemony the economic hegemony that uh, harini was talking about that there is this economic narrative that sees everything in terms of its monetary value and exclusionary 
um, uh, exclusionary process of defining property as a way of enhancing efficiency and enhancing a very narrow concept of value and the commoning as a form of resistance or as a form of social movement, which is emerging to um, attack against that, uh, you know, that narrative and that process of thinking, which as Harini pointed out is very strong. So that was my first response, I think, uh, to that. That is more the activist bend of, and also not just, I think it's leading to new ways of conceptualizing, which enlarge the way we think about value, not just in economic terms, but in terms of value of relationships, relationships between people and people and nature and so on. So it's that's the first part. The second part about unpacking complexity, I think here I have found a lot of inspiration from Ostrom's later work on thinking about um, these complex social ecological systems and having uh, what she called a multi-tiered uh, framework of looking at social ecological systems in terms of the governance part, the actors, the resource and the resource group and decomposing the variables. So you have a whole set of variables and uh, those variables include both uh, processes and factors and you create that whole language and grammar around the commons to be able to unpack the complexity. So she talks about how we can harness the complexity to arrive at solutions. And the way we harness is to look at diverse case studies and pick out these variables and relationships and study them systematically. I have found that to be, I think the way out of complexity is not to reduce or to simplify, but to harness that complexity. And I think we have a rich diversity of case studies that can help us harness the complexity. And I think um, um, I have found that to be a useful way to proceed. And in that, I mix both qualitative and quantitative uh, methods. So there are some things that we can only, these processes and relationships may be very important to understand qualitatively, but then you also have resource flows and dynamics and mapping and all of that, which can be studied quantitatively. Also these economic relationships, I'm trained as an economist. So I uh, definitely look, I think there is value in looking at the, the quantitative part, but then see how it can be enhanced and complemented and in fact amplified by bringing in the qualitative relationships. That's great. Thank you, Rimjim. Um, Harini, did you want to add anything? So I'm personally not a framework-heavy uh, scientist. My, I don't start with frameworks. I most start with the problem, and then I pick up methods, and I often then get into areas where I, the first few things I, I might even have to throw away because I don't know the methods, and I don't know the area, and I don't know the frameworks. Right? So it's been trial and error working through different areas. That has a limitation because not having been, so my own background comes in here a little bit here because I, my undergraduate and uh, graduate training was in microbiology and molecular biology. And then for some reason from there, I accidentally got into ecology and then took on social sciences, right? So I don't have a formal training in most things. And I find that's been a strength in some places, but I have to say, when I come to the urban commons, the, the questions that I ask now, I, I find it incredibly limiting now. 
for instance, I would love to study economic flows and I realize how infrastructure plays a huge role in understanding urban commons or what makes cities tick. And uh, the kinds of, so coming to your question on quantitative, I think it would be really very important to do simple quantitative un, uh, answers to things like, is Bangalore going to run out of water? Very fundamental question. Related to the urban commons, also related to private uh, provisioning of water and state provisioning of water. And we frankly don't have an answer because people have not crunched those numbers in ways that are realistic. People are looking at partial slices of the picture. Right? And I wish I could get into that, but I can't. I don't have the, the, the skills to do it or the economic skills to look at these complex flows and say, okay, in that case, how do you make... We know there's an argument to be made on the commons as an economic case, just in terms of health and well-being, but how do you make that economic case? I don't have the skills to make it. But on the other hand, so I think quantitative data is very important and we need to get collaborative enterprises. It's not possible for one group to do this. We need different people coming in. On the qualitative front though, even if you get that very important quantitative data, I think many people will struggle to understand it. So I think qualitatively, we need those thick storylines. And I've also realizing then the importance when you're doing interdisciplinary work of storytelling as being a very powerful way of communication, because I think we're doing, a lot, a lot of us are doing this work finally to try and see some action. This is youth-inspired research in a very broad sense. Right? And so how do you get the storylines? I think it's not just the thick case studies, but how do you get those storylines in ways that multiple people who read them can see themselves or people that they know as part of these storylines and then see how these complex forces. So I go back to yeah, build on Rim Jim saying that you do do the qualitative and the quantitative. You can't, it's not either or, but it's also how do you interpret those in ways that people can, can make sense of them. If I struggle to make sense of them, I'm trying to think of a policymaker or just a commoner looking at a community. That was terrific, Karini. I mean, there's multiple things that I could pick up on there. I mean, I really res the, the point about storytelling really strongly resonates with me. I mean, it's something, you know, I'm sure a lot of us tell our students, like, make sure that whatever you're saying to people in a presentation, that there's a story in there, because otherwise you're going to lose them in this, like, a sea of slides and PowerPoints. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Pita, did you want to add something? Yeah, I'm going to quote my PhD supervisor on this. <laughs> so for those who don't know, I worked with Harini. Uh, and uh, I mean, something she always told me pretty much when I started out on my PhD was, what is this question that you're asking? Are you, an, are you a historian trying to find an answer to an environmental question? Or are you an environmental scientist trying to find uh, an answer to an environmental question using historical frame? And I thought that was, that was something that's always helped me uh, not define myself in terms of an ist, uh, but more in terms of uh, the specific question that I'm asking at a given point of time, what is a question? What, why am I framing it the way I am framing it? And therefore, what methods or what, what uh, schools of thought do I want to engage with? Um, so if if something if it makes sense for me to include something like urban political ecology uh, arguments like sanitary cities or something like that into a, a you know a story of change of a lake into a bus station. Um, that is, it, it really comes about because of how I'm able to frame that question really in a way. Um, and I thought that was something that uh, also is very helpful in providing an inroad into that complexity question that you asked. Um, the other thing about methods, um, yeah, I think I completely agree with Harini. I mean, because um, 
yeah, it, it, it's it's difficult, right? It's a strength in a sense that I can go and pick up new skills um, anytime I want to, but that's also a sub, substantial investment of time and commitment to actually want to learn, uh, you know, get proficient in something uh, like Google Earth Engine, right? I, I'm now familiar with it thanks to the C-Sync thing that we are on, but but I'm not by a long mile proficient in using the uh, in using the tool. Um, but at the same time, or historical stuff. So I, I'm also a life scientist by training. So uh, getting getting to pick up historical skills, learning to understand how to read between the lines of historical documents, or conducting oral history interviews, all of that took a certain time and effort. Um, but at the same time, it's also something that's very satisfying to be able to straddle these various methods. Um, and of course, quantitative things. I think that's my biggest nightmare as well. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I do think it's a strength. Um, and I do think it's you need mixed methods um, to sort of answer some of these questions of complexity that we're talking about. Um, but also that I think there is a lot of scope for collaboration because I don't think we can do all of this at the same time and with one person or two people or so on. Mm. Great. Thanks, Sita. Did any of you have any final thoughts you had on this conversation before I switch gears and ask you a final question to wrap things up? Yeah, I'll add one more uh, line of thought. So as having been trained as an economist, what drew me to the commons was the central question that, of course, emerged from Garrett Hardin's strategy of the commons, right? So, and prisoner's dilemma kind of um, uh, narratives that get forced onto you as in your economics training, you know, and um, the commons raised the question of how a person would behave in a way such as to cooperate with others and attack those fundamental questions of uh, selfish human behavior that, um, you know, economics had put forth in its most orthodox sort of uh, conceptualizations. And so my interest in it began to, in terms of understanding the determinants of cooperation, where economic theory would tell you there shouldn't be any. But I think that conversation has moved. Now in the world around us, we are thinking about issues related to injustices and the whole set of people being excluded from you know, the economy. The economy is not working for a large majority of people. The society is not working for a large variety of people. Natural resources that we are supposedly abundant with are not available, are not accessible to millions of people. So I think this whole direction of commoning, like I said, is a resistance movement, is a movement towards making these exclusionary policies, exclusionary practices that have become part of our hegemonic discourses that we talked about. So commoning as a way of bringing in these discussions of justice while also being sensitive to the uh, diverse needs that we have in this age of Anthropocene. So I think centering this issue of, of inclusion has become very important. I think that's great. And if I can just build on this for a, a little bit, I think Trimjim, where you're getting to is that the study of the commons is really a deeply normative issue, right, at the core. Yes. And many of us who work on the commons are here because we believe in that normative issue. And so if I have to think back to why I do urban commons is because I live in cities and because cities around me are very dystopic 
and I'm at core an optimist and I can't think of another way of living, frankly, because if you lose optimism, what do you have? But it's not naive optimism that we need in today's uh, days, day and age because the problems are too real and frightening. But what you need is optimism built on something that is really a resistance, like you said. And so I think coming back to that, that feeling of uh, that normative or that storytelling urge, again, coming back to that, I think that is what drives a lot of us in here to look at urban commons because they offer you one, one possibility, one way out of this, this dystopic situation that we're in. Yeah, thanks for that both. I mean, those, I think those are important thoughts. I mean, when I think to myself, like what keeps me interested in the commons and communities, it, it it usually is some image of some some better situation than what I often see around. It's that's what really inspires me. I think about togetherness and embeddedness. Um, and Rimjin, to uh, explicitly respond to what you were talking about, getting back to the commenting, I agree that it is important that we. I mean, it's, it's hard to think about what keyword I should use here. Politicize the study of of the commons as something, and understand that as a normative enterprise. Mm-hmm. And not kind of, you know, hide from that below some kind of patina of technical expertise and then focus on efficiency, right? I mean, I think I think that is a healthy place for us to move, even though it's it's challenging. I mean, it's um, you have to think about a lot of difficult issues that otherwise you wouldn't if you were kind of hiding from that. Um, so the final question I have for the three of you is about the conference uh, explicitly. Are there, are there aspects of the conference you're particularly excited about for yourself that you want to learn about, um, folks you're hoping to meet, um, or are there you know, points you'd want to make to um, essentially advertise the conference to other folks who are thinking of coming in you know, a little over a week? Ita, do you want to start? There's some nice tracks in the conference that I'm kind of, excited about um, this. There's a whole section on the North-South divide, which I'm particularly excited about, the methods to study urban commons, which uh, we have another track on. Um, and really the kinds of methods that emerge seem to be quite fascinating, especially in the field as of now. Um, I'm also quite excited about the two workshops that we are offering aimed um, largely at early career scholars. Um, one on historical um, using GIS uh, or learning the basics of GIS using a historical approach, uh, which is being offered by a colleague of mine, uh, myself at uh, Azim Premji University. Um, and I think the idea is really, there is a lot of stuff out there that says, uh, you know, this is how you can use GIS and these other techniques, but not really so much that focuses on historical maps. Uh, and how do you engage with hand-drawn maps to really bringing them on onto a cartographic space? So I th- that that's something I'm quite excited about. There's also another one on academic writing, which uh, is being offered by Rawl, which is uh, also equally exciting uh, uh, in terms of uh, stuff that we can learn and do. Great, thanks, Ita. Rimjan. Yeah, I would say I am at the center of the, all the activity here at Arizona where we are planning the conference. And I remember it was exactly a year back when we first started thinking about it and Marco proposed that this would be an online format. This was back when the pandemic had just started and we were looking a year ahead and nobody believed him at that time that you know a year from now we would be thinking about online. Um, but, uh, and we were all very 
skeptical about how it would all play out in an online format. But I'm very excited to say that um, online is not just a, sort of a substitute, a bad substitute for meeting in person. But there are ways. Of course, it's great to meet in person. Nobody can take away from the fun of it. But there are, I'm discovering so many new ways in which online is, first of all, enabling us to have much wider participation than we would have had in an in-person uh, conference. We are getting, I am happy to report that we have representation from so many different countries and from academia, as well as actual practitioners on the ground, NGOs and People are suggesting all kinds of things like making videos and having these online networking sessions and all of that. I'm very excited. So first of all, I'm very excited about the online format, the diversity of participation we have and diversity of activities we have. The second thing I'm very excited about is our opening session, which is being led by uh, Sheila Foster. And that is talking about a um, project they have called LabGo which is a network of um, different projects that were started to think about how on the ground in cities, we work on forms of collaborative and shared governance in cities. So work with citizens to think about shared management of uh, city resources. And they conducted a number of experiments on how they did these governance uh, projects from all over the world and they would be sharing their challenges and experiences. So I would give a big shootout for that opening plenary because uh, that's both on the theoretical but also very practical side of how you actually work on the commons, um, you know, in a shared collaborative management framework. And then we have a number of live panels and um, webinars and uh, people have recorded that talk so that we can, we're trying very hard to make it, the conference very interactive. So have all the boring presentations part as recorded things which are on the website, go see them when you have time. Let's use our time together to really uh, struggle as Harini said with some of these contested normative issues. Often we don't have time in the conferences. We keep rushing between sessions. And I hope that we can, we have tried to organize it in such a way that there is a lot of time for close interaction, even though we are not in person. So very excited about this new format. It's an experiment. Fantastic. It's great to hear how inclusive it's being. Yeah, I think Rinchim and uh, Marco and the other co their colleagues at ASU have been doing a really fabulous job of, of the hard work really that behind the scenes to keep this running. And I think therefore it's been much relatively easier for us to come in and engage with the other ideas. And I think they've been facing a much more challenging task. It's, I think for me, and, you know, working from India, I think this has been great. This, this year of online conferences, I know it's, of course, meeting in the online world has other challenges, but it's really opened up before I, I think most scholars in the, from the global South could choose maybe one or two events they want to participate in, a, in anything in a year. And if you're doing interdisciplinary work, that's especially hard because then you have to choose really which discipline you want to contribute in or 
be part of for that year, right? And now you don't have to choose. And we can see, as Rimchim said, we've got such a variety of people coming in with for this Urban Commons Conference. I think that's been a real vindication for us of, of this approach. I hope we can continue this in the years to come. <laughs> so it doesn't have to be that we go back to the default face-to-face. -face. I think we're also in the reality of a world in which climate change makes us think about our travel footprints. And so, you know, I really think we should be looking at online spaces. I'm looking forward to this because this, this conference has such a diversity of things. It has something for everyone working on the urban commons. If you're interested in methods, there are sessions on how do you look at methods of the urban commons. If you're looking at conceptual theories and frameworks, there are sessions looking at conceptual theories and frameworks. If you're interested in practice, then there are specific sessions on, for instance, architecture as practice or uh, social movements as uh, for the commons. You know, there's, there's so much for everyone in here. And there are, I think, uh, I'd echo Hita and saying, please do sign up if you would like to for the two uh, methods workshops, one in uh, GIS, which uh, Hita and another colleague of mine, Inakshi, will be taking. And Raul Pacheco-Vega is going to be taking another session on writing, I think, and looking at uh, how do you look at literature and then write on the urban commons, both of which would be really fabulous for early career uh, scholars of the commons. And of course, Sheila Foster's wonderful plenary session, which we are all very much looking forward to. And we have a and, prize uh, for uh, best student presentation. Sorry to interrupt. I want yes, to make absolutely. sure. I, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I hope this really can help most pe more people who are thinking of starting work on the urban commons. I hope this can be a note to help them come into this conversation and, and enrich our own understanding with their perspectives, because I'm sure they're going to come from other disciplines that can really, as we say, complexify this, we'll be discussing, complexify this further, but also enrich it further. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Incoming Podcast is produced by myself, Stefan Partolo, and Courtney Hemmenwagner. We are a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To listen to more episodes, you can go to your local podcasting app and to our website, incommonpodcast.org. There you will also find our blog and a link to our Patreon account that you can use to give us a small donation to help us cover operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at InCommonPod.